0: judge a person and it turns out you didn't have the whole story ever learn there was a lot more to that story than you first realized i'm kimberly and i'm rebecca join us as we separate the little lies from the big reputations
1: welcome back everyone Welcome back. We hope you enjoyed that blooper episode we re- we released last time. Uh, it was a nice little break for us as well. We needed yes. one.
0: Yeah, I think we were both. I was traveling. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you were up to. Summer traveling. class. No,
1: we were busy. Oh. Yeah, busy little beavers. Oh, and gish. I was doing gish during the week it came out. So, um how did your gishing go? That went pretty well. I think I had fun. I did some good items. I enjoyed the ones I did with my nephew when he came to visit. Um, That's one of my favorite parts.
0: What was the weirdest item? Oh, gosh.
1: You know what? I I honestly can't even remember the items I did at this point. Because, like, I feel like that week is so condensed into everything and then like it just stops and and for me because it is during summer classes like it ended and then I had the last week of summer classes and I had to like get grading and after yeah. grades were done it was like okay prep for the next semester and this and that so I don't I I had to make a giant fortune cookie that was Ooh. fun how'd you do that so I did a lot of googling and watched some YouTube videos about like how to make uh how to make them in general Uh uh-huh. And then. I saw there's a restaurant somewhere in California that does like the giant size ones. And I was like, okay, how big of one can I fit in my oven? <laughs> so <laughs> it's it's like a, a very, very thin cookie that you cook flat. Uh-huh. And then when it comes out of the oven, you have to like fold it, but you also have to kind of let it cool. and it But you can't let it cool too much because then it yes, won't then it fold. Yeah, okay. So that was sort of the tricky part, but um, yeah, I'll, I'll share a photo of that. We can post that on on the Instagram. Just like a giant fortune cookie. <laughs> you
0: have to put a fortune in it, I'm guessing, right? Yeah, What'd yeah, that put? was part of
1: it. Um, something about, you know what? I don't remember. Something about like the true, true happiness is in like the friends we made along. It wasn't that, but it, was, it was something like heartfelt. Uh, was the the thing so you had to make a picture of it full and then you had to crack it open and have the fortune Mm -hmm. coming out and I was afraid it wouldn't come out great or it wouldn't show how big it was because Mm -hmm. it was supposed to be like the largest you can make so I went to the Chinese restaurant was like hi I would like some fortune cookies and she gave me like six for a dollar and I was like that's great Thank you. <laughs> I thought
0: you were like, "Hello, I would like one singular fortune cookie."
1: <laughs> no, I
0: wanted to like set the scene, so I I, I made it. a a pretty display and whatnot. But my yeah. Chinese restaurant does not give out fortune cookies anymore. I don't know the last time I had a fortune cookie. That's weird. I, I don't, don't I don't know. I just feel like it's a staple. But I mean, most people. I think a lot of people don't eat them, so it kind of makes no. sense. Yeah, but. I definitely like so wasteful. I, like crush them and then read the fortune. Yeah.
1: Well, I do think that like GISH did better this year in terms of not being wasteful with like a lot of their items being things it's like, oh, if you make this out of food, then eat it. And, you know, like kind of encouraging you to not waste. And they actually didn't have um, they've usually done um, menstrual hygiene product items. And I think the last two years they cut those out completely because it's wasteful for people who are struggling to have access to those things.
0: True. But I do remember one year when I did Gish, you had to make Jenga out of tampons. And I had a super box from Costco. So I did it, but I didn't unwrap them. And then I saw other people unwrap them. And I was like, why on earth would you do that? Like, right? (laughs) And these. Like, that's (laughs) silly. Yeah. Speaking of tampons, do you flush your tampons? Or well, did you flush your tampons?
1: Yeah. So for the listeners out there, like I don't have a period anymore. I had a hysterectomy, so I don't go through any of that. I wasn't a big tampon user when mm-hmm. I did have a period, but occasionally I would. I did not ever flush them because as a child, and probably until I was too old to have this fear. I have a fear of toilets overflowing. And so just the idea that like this tampon could potentially clog the toilet and overflow it freaked me out. So I just never, I didn't, but I, like I said, I didn't use tampons a ton
0: anyway. So. So I use tampons all the time and I have flushed every single one, my whole life, like didn't even think about it. And I don't remember how it came up. I think it might've been a TikTok or we were watching we were, watching something on TV. And he's like, well, yeah, like you shouldn't flush those. And I was like, what do you know about? <laughs> and I was like, you absolutely flush them. And he's like, no, you don't. And I was like, I do. And he's like, well, you shouldn't. And then I Googled it and it was like, no, you shouldn't because they like expand and absorb water. So they can like mess with your pipes. And I was just like, as I texted you and I was like, I need you to ask the, the I when I need a jury of like a large number of women, I will I will text <laughs> Rebecca because she just like will put it in the sister chat. And I was like, I need to know if other women know this. And like most of them did. And I was just like, well, I feel like I was outwomaned by my husband and to <laughs> punish him. I will continue to flush my tampons. So I'm supposed to like carry it to the garbage. Like what? Like seems- Well, if you're out in public, it's not a huge deal because usually I mean, to be
1: fair, this is probably only true for cis women because um we're using the women's room and in in the women's bathroom there's often like a little trash receptacle in the stall yeah. i doubt um that trans men would have that same opportunity because usually there's not that many stalls mm-hmm. and um i don't know i've I've only used the men's bathroom a few times when the line to the ladies' room was too long. Yeah, we were in there long (laughs) enough to like look at anything. Yeah. So I, and I'm like, don't touch, don't, uh, uh," you know, but yeah. So if you're in public, that's not that bad. And I don't know. I, when I did have a period, I have a trash can in my bathroom because I would like wrap the pads and throw them away and whatnot. So I just, you know, you do have to wrap the tampons a lot
0: yeah see
1: i don't know I, I don't know people out there let us know do you flush
0: them do you, you not did you know about this i mean apparently anyway like go for i'm gonna flush it in. i talked to a couple of friends who didn't know either and they're pro flushing and just like that's that's a plumber's problem that's not my business that's yeah, between the, that's- the toilet and whoever lives here next i guess um <laughs> But like, I I intend to continue flushing unless someone like writes in and is like, oh, my God, your apartment's going to explode. Don't do that. I, I feel like I live in a big enough building that like it's not going to be me who right. messes up the plumbing, you know, like it'll be someone else. Well,
1: yeah. And, you know, I think especially in public, too, if you go to a bathroom where it's like, please don't flush anything besides paper, then you're going to take that into consideration yeah. because they know and they've had experiences. Oh, yeah. But. If you've been doing it in your own house and you haven't had a problem, Never. I I don't know. I don't know. I'm
0: not a plumbing
1: scientist.
0: <laughs> I'm not a tampon scientist, but. Oh, and one of your sisters, I do not remember. I think maybe Brooke told me about those Thinks period, period like underwear. Mm-hmm. Which I just bought a pair of and I'm like very excited. I'm not very excited to use it. <laughs> but the next time i have a period, <laughs> I will be able to use it. I'm kind of excited to like not, cause I've been looking for an alternative because tampons are super wasteful, but I've heard like horrible suction stories with the cup. And that makes me very nervous. So like, this is my, my, my next best option I think is these period panties. I'm excited right. to use them. Well, Want to be a sponsor? I got like boy shorts. They're really comfortable. If if they don't work, I'm just going to wear them as like shorts around the house anyway. But they seem really comfortable. Yeah. I I mean, I mean so many of those things came into
1: existence after I stopped having a period. Mm-hmm. Or it, maybe they existed before, but like I was not familiar with them. Like the yeah. cup. I learned about the cup after my <laughs> surgery.
0: Mm-hmm. And I was like, The cup oh, has been around for a while, though. But I was I'm always sure. Like, nope, nope. I don't know how. My brain can't work around how that works. Well, y'all let us know what's your your period product of choice. What is your period? Product of <laughs> I, don't I don't know. know. <laughs> no, that's good. So yeah, thanks. You should sponsor us. But you know who else just started sponsoring us on our Patreon? We've got some shout-outs for some amazing people. Yes, we are so excited to have our first two patrons for Patreon.
1: We have Naomi A and we have TJ. So thank you both. Thank you so much. You're amazing. yeah, so if anyone else is interested in being a patron, um we are we'll talk about it again at the end of the episode as a reminder, but we are doing shout outs for our patrons in our episodes, you know, until we get like a hundred and that's too much to
0: do. and I commit to doing it when it's a hundred. <laughs> Everyone uh, is special. Everyone is important. Yeah, but as someone who like listens to it, I just skip that. <laughs> when I'm in another podcast, the first twenty minutes of the episode is just a roll call. <laughs> At the five dollar level,
1: we're going to be doing little reputations, and so you get like bonus content from us,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which is that alone is reason to sign up.
0: I mean, right? We're awesome,
1: and there's more of us. Oh, there's more. <laughs> I was like.
0: Wait, there's only two of us. I did not. <laughs> like there'd be more content from the two of us. No, I get it. I just was a little slow there. I did not pick up. I was like, wait, who else is going to be on it? I'm confused. No, nope. nope. That could be a Patreon level. Be like, hey, want to like guess an episode with us? Ooh. Ooh. I like that. We'll have to think of
1: adding that level in the future for sure.
0: We got to, like, vet the person. Totally. Can't be too weird. We're already weird.
1: (laughs) We need someone to balance us out. Yes. Speaking of balance, balance the scales of justice. Nice. Oh!
0: Because you know who we're talking about in this episode? We're talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So today we're going to be covering one of our all-time favorite Supreme Court justices, the one and only Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We will discuss her education, her early
1: career, the support she had from her partner, a couple of the many cases she tried, and her appointment to the Supreme Court.
0: Then we're going to talk about how she came to be known as RBG, her overall celebrity, and her sharp yet articulate dissents, and how and why she continued to serve on the court despite various health concerns. Finally,
1: we'll wrap up with the huge impact that Ginsburg has had on this country, primarily in terms of equality rights and fighting for what is right in general. But we'll also talk about how her education and relationship paths can be an inspiration to many. Joan Ruth Bader, Ginsburg by marriage, was born March 15, 1933 in Brooklyn, New York. BK, I'll date. <laughs> You're the only one allowed to say that here. Like I've lived here for a decade, but like, I can't, I can't go there. That's, that's out of my, like, that's not allowed. You're not from that
0: part of Brooklyn.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm not. (laughs) Anyway, she was born to Celia and Nathan Bader, who lived in the Flatbush neighborhood. Can you say that in Flatbush? Yes. Yeah, you can. Okay. All right. Her father was a Jewish emigrant from Odessa, Ukraine, and her mother was a native New Yorker. She had an older sister named Marilyn who died of meningitis when Ruth was only a year old. But on a lighter, fun note, she was left-handed. And as someone who is left-handed, I feel like I needed to point that out just because there's so few of us. We're only a quarter of the population. <laughs> No judging. No judging. Oh, Look, I mean, you wrote—you didn't see but you wrote "southpaw."
0: Yeah, <laughs> says that
1: left-handed people.
0: <laughs> That's why there's not that many of you. Because you say well, stuff like "southpaw," but you know, I'm I was left-handed. reading it.
1: I oh, cool! I didn't know that. It's so weird how she holds like paper. It's not like, weird to write. Oh, she might do it the way my grandmother did. She does. She twist basically, her arm backwards. Yeah, like, like her, basically like upside down. I was like, because oh, like in their age group, they weren't allowed to, and and that was one of uh, Ruth's issues too. is that her teacher tried to like make her write right handed, and apparently she got like a D in penmanship because she was trying to write right handed. She switched back to her left hand. Never got another D again. So Please. that's why you know, like my grandmother, that was the same thing is she was, her teacher tried to make her write with the right hand and her father went in and was like, no, that's not happening. (laughs) But because they would only teach like the angle of how to hold your pencil from the right-handed perspective, Mm -hmm. she had to twist her hand around. So it looked like the right-handed perspective. Yeah. That's how she, I I wonder if that's the
0: same for your mom. Probably. Is I remember the first time I realized that she was left-handed, I was like, what are you doing? Like, she was just like writing. She was writing upside down. And I was like, why are you broken? And the, then I realized, no, it's just the world's not made for you guys. And that sucks. Like desk and stuff are weird. Like yeah. scissors. Like that sounds difficult. But, you
1: know, Ruth maybe had it tough in that regard. But she uh, she was a fighter.
0: So she didn't let it hold her back. Yeah, especially not in education. Her parents were super passionate about education. So when her father was growing up in Ukraine, Jewish children were not allowed to even go to school. When her mother was growing up, Celia, she'd been a great student, but her family didn't have enough money to send both her, her and her brother to college. So her education ended with high school graduation while her brother was able to move forward. <sighs> yeah, It's exhausting. It is exhausting. It is, but also like it's very much of the times, like, mm-hmm. you know, who was going to get like a job after graduating, like her brother probably, like it would have been like, throwing money into the fire pit to send her to college at that time. Yeah. Yeah. When it came to Ruth, though, education
1: was the focus. Both of her parents drilled into her the importance of being wise and independent. The goal was college, as her mother hoped she could be a high school teacher. Sadly, Celia did not get to see just how far her daughter would go as she passed away the night before Ruth's high school graduation. Ruth was just 17. And I just feel like that's so much to deal with.
0: Yeah, right? Like, that's so tough. Like, especially at that age. And like, you're going to do the thing that your mom was like really proud and really like insistent that you do. Like, not to be all like, what's the afterlife like? But like, do you think like her mom knows how far she got like her mom her parents would be so impressed after graduation ruth went on to attend cornell university in ithaca new york her grades earned her a full scholarship like a full ride so while she was there she was majoring in government that's when she met her husband martin david ginsburg lovingly known as marty
1: so during this time in the 1950s college for women was more about learning what you could do until you met your husband it was commonly known as earning your MRS degree. So it makes me
0: think of that movie, Mona Lisa Smile. Have you ever seen that? No. I saw it recently, like a couple of months ago, like HBO was like, want to watch this? And I was like, sure. And um, it's got like Kristen Stewart and, oh, God, who, Julia Roberts is like the teacher. And she's like trying to get them to learn like really important things. And Kristen Stewart is just like, I'm getting married next year. And not, not Kristen Stewart. Kristen dunce okay she's all like i'm getting married next year and i don't care about any of this blah, 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 blah. yeah it's very much like that like some women like want to learn and other women are just like where's my husband
1: yeah and the teachers
0: just like i'm going to teach you and they're like you're teaching too much it's 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 good you're teaching you too it. much i i yeah.
1: yeah i was actually just talking about this concept with my students in the summer class we were talking about Sandra Cisneros and how her her parents let her major in English because they just figured she was going to college to meet a husband, not like she was allowed to, I think the quote was major in something silly like English, Mm -hmm. which, you know, considering how amazing she is as an author and how Mm -hmm. prolific she is, it's just like,
0: yep. Well, she got her degree. (laughs) That feels like such a sneak attack, like, ha ha ha, major in something silly. This is what I do now, mom. (laughs) No husband, English degree, writing books. In the 2018 documentary, RBG, directed by Betsy West and Julie Cohen, Ruth speaks about her fellow classmates. One of the sadnesses about the brilliant girls who attended Cornell is that they kind of suppressed how smart they were. For some women, it was a choice between being smart or being married. Men of the time weren't looking for a woman to have a career. It just wasn't traditional. It's like they never got the opportunity to say, why not both? Exactly. It was like, why not both? Because I don't want a wife who is smart and can like tell me when I'm being stupid. Men. No. They should have been saying is, why men? I well, digress. that too. <laughs> I not everybody can be like Marty
1: right well actually you know he seems to be by all accounts from her and from others a stellar husband when when Ruth met her husband she had no intention of leaving school but like he didn't push her to either so (laughs) in the RBG documentary Ruth states Marty was the first boy I ever knew who cared that I had a brain most guys in the 50s didn't she goes on to say that Marty was so confident in his own ability, so comfortable with himself, that he never regarded me as any kind of threat. And I am going to say when I first read that, I was like, so does that mean he just thought he was smarter than you, so it didn't matter? Or, you know, but I don't get that impression. Everything no. I read about the two of them, I, I definitely get the impression that they were partners in equals.
0: Yeah. yeah, no, it definitely seems that way. Like when I when I heard that, I was like, he should have felt threatened because you're a genius, <laughs> But it was like, oh, no, he was just like, hey, my wife's a genius. I'm pretty good, too. There's no yeah. competition here. We're both just awesome. And that's a, That's how it should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the two of them encouraged each other.
1: And when Ruth decided to continue her education, Marty was 100% on board. By June of 1954, Ruth was a college graduate, married, and on her way to Harvard Law School.
0: So Harvard Law School, like most schools at the time, um, they were just starting to be okay with letting women attend. <laughs> The first woman who was admitted was admitted in 1950. So Ruth was the class of 1950. So she was going in 1954. So right. there'd been like one successful. How long is law school? Three years or four years? I don't know. Probably. I, I think I'm. Thinking I feel years. like it's like
1: seven years, but I don't know. That's just how long. I, that's how long it is to do a PhD is like five to seven years usually. So, but I don't know, how, like law school, they might just have you on a very specific track and it's different.
0: They do Yeah. I think so. I want to say three. We'll, we'll look it up later, but I'm going to very confidently, not confidently say three years. Anyway, okay. the first woman was admitted in 1950 and in Ruth's class, there were nine women. That's the same number that should be on the Supreme court. Yeah. <laughs> nine women. Nine Supreme women. Supreme Court. Um, but yeah, like, could you imagine? Like, you're going to school and there's nine women. Well, I feel like that probably
1: was a, a big thing too when they first uh, did racial integration in the schools, right? Yeah. Whether we're talking about like desegregating schools for racial reasons, gender reasons being in such a minority, like that nine students out of how many, I mean, it, it's not like it was nine out of
0: 10. Yeah. We're we're going to talk about it later, but it was nine out of 500, 500 okay. plus.
1: Yeah. So yeah. that's going to be extremely intimidating, not in the sense that you don't know that you belong there, but that people are constantly trying to make you feel like you don't belong there. Yeah.
0: And like people did. So like we looked a little bit into it and like we learned from the documentary that like life for like a budding lady lawyer at Harvard was not great. So in interviews over the years, Ruth recalls not being able to be called on in class, being turned away from the law library because it wasn't a space for women. So apparently the whole place wasn't a space for women since like we said, there was only nine women to 500 plus men. The women's presence were questioned constantly. There were Mm -hmm. those at the school who didn't like that when we were taking up spaces that could be reserved for men. I mean, there were nine men who weren't getting to go to school that year. Nine. And what, how much space were they taking up? Like, how much space were these women taking up?
1: And honestly, did they not get to go?
0: Or, you know, like, did they
1: go somewhere else? Or did they, you yeah. know, like there's so many factors. And the minute you say that such and such group shouldn't be allowed here because that takes mm-hmm. away spots from someone else, like, yeah. fuck off with that. Like...
0: I they were good that,
1: enough to get in. They were exactly. the best of like, let's, I'm, I'm just going to go with the round 500 just to make the numbers easy. Mm. Uh, but like, there were nine women at that point. It wasn't like they had a checklist. They're like, oh, we're only going to allow nine women so that we're going to, you know, it's like, these are the top 500 people, Yeah, whether they're men or women. Mm. And that's the way it should be. oh Anyway, Ruth proved herself while she was there. By the second year, she was part of the Harvard Law Review. Now, the Harvard Law Review is published by an independent student group at the school, and only the top 25% of the students with the highest grades are invited. During this time, Marty and Ruth went through their highs and lows, and on July 21st, 1955, they welcomed a daughter named Jane and began parenting while they were both in law school.
0: Like I'm tired when I have to do laundry on a work day. Like I don't know how they managed, how she managed a pregnancy, then a child, and then schoolwork. Like, yeah, that sounds exhausting. Like, totally. I cannot having.
1: I cannot imagine having gotten my degree with a kid. Like, so mad. Kudos, props to all those people out there who do it. Y'all are amazing.
0: So, shortly after this, Marty was diagnosed with cancer. He began treatment and eventually beat it, but it was a really long road. Ruth was determined to make sure that neither of them fell behind in school. Class assignments for him. So, like, again, this is the 50s. So she wasn't just making a photocopy. She was at a typewriter copying notes over to give to him. I mean, I guess at least she didn't have to handwrite it, but damn. That's, yeah. That's effort. Like, I mean, ugh, like, I'm just thinking about it. I was like, okay, now imagine you have, like, whatever they give you in law school, like like a case briefing or something that might be like 20 something pages. I need that back. So I need you to like type that up real quick. So you're just like typing feverishly and then you have to give it to someone to read. So you could spend like an hour typing something. I could spend that an hour. I would spend an hour typing something for sure. I also think that it probably says a lot about, uh,
1: of course, the time period, but you know, that there wasn't some sort of like leave that he could take, <laughs> And come back without penalty, right? Like, that's yeah. a whole
0: other issue. I but. do wonder when they started, like, like, school started letting you do a leave of absence. I'm so sure they would have been like, oh, you got cancer? <sighs> but i like next time, bud. Like, you can reapply. Like, I don't think that they were, I don't know. I feel like the 50s were terrible for everyone. Like, it was just like, yeah. that sucks for you. But, like, we have to move on. Like, I don't think there was a lot of leeway for things. I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking like registrar nerdy mode. I really want to look up when like the first leave of absence was.
1: You should definitely do that nerdy
0: registrar. <laughs> I'm gonna and then I can impress my registrar with it and be like, oh, did you know the first leave of absence was like 1962? Probably the war, honestly. Like Vietnam, I don't know. I'm absolutely guessing I'm not a leave of absence scientist. So like let's get back <laughs> to talking about roof. During this, like, really stressful time where there was no leave of absence, Ruth learned to balance her time. And she was able to take care of her family and maintain her studies, but not just maintain. Like, she was passionate about law and about making change. And speaking of change, Marty graduated Harvard Law and was offered a position
1: at a law firm in New York City. So they all moved back to Ruth's hometown and she transferred to Columbia Law School for her final year. At Columbia, she was one of, get ready for this, one of, 12 women in the wow. class of 1959. Woo! There's a whole four more women, four, three, nine, 10, 11, 12. Not a math scientist. <laughs> <laughs> You're not a math scientist, but that was just <laughs> such bad mathing. <laughs> it was terrible math. Anyway, there were three more women in this class than there were at Harvard. And this was the class of 1959. Ruth really loved her time there and she graduated tied for first place. But look, I don't have the stats on this. I don't know. I'm not like in the registrar's office, but like, I wonder if she actually tied or if she beat the I'm assuming man Mm. who they say that she tied with. You know, like I said, this is pure speculation. Yeah, I don't think it's beyond
0: a reasonable doubt. I wonder if they were even like, well, we can't compare the men to the women because like their brains are different. So maybe she tied with another woman. Like you think they even put them in the same category? The men and women there? Yeah. I I don't I, I don't, I don't know to. though. I don't know. No, you're right. Because like for the the legal review, like she was in the top 25%. She was the only woman on the legal review for Harvard. Right. So they had to rank them some way. Okay. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I would I would bet. But honestly, it would be very it's very lenient of them to be like, hey, it was a tie." instead of shut up, bitch. Like this guy did better than you. So yeah. Like, if she did tie with the guy. And I know I'm like scrape and like, like escape from the bottom of the barrel to be like, that was really nice of them to like admit that she tied because I could absolutely see them just being like, no, you don't <laughs> even have a GPA. What are you talking about? You know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I don't know. But it, like the minute I saw that she tied with someone, I was like, oh, I bet she didn't. I bet they just didn't want to give it to woman. But that's my like super skeptical side. Mm-hmm. And despite graduating top of her class or tied for top of her class, mm-hmm. she couldn't find a job. She interviewed at 12 different law firms and was turned
0: down by all of them. So Ginsburg herself suspected that no one would hire her because she was Jewish She was female and she was a mother. She was also more than qualified for any of the positions that she was applying for, like overqualified even. But solely based on her sex, she was rejected. This stuck with her. And we will circle back to that later. Yeah. Through the Columbia Law School Network, Ginsburg ended up getting a job clerking for Judge Edmund Palmari in the U.S. Southern District Court of New York. She worked there from 1959 to 1961.
1: Her former professor, Hans Smith, then hired Ruth to be a researcher and associate director of Columbia's Project on International Procedure. By 1963, Ginsburg developed an academic passion and became a professor at Rutgers Law School in New Jersey. By 1969, she had had another baby, a son named James, who was at this point four years old and was a full-time professor.
0: At Rutgers, she was asked to teach a course titled Women and the Law. At this point, women had very little rights. They're fighting to change that. Some people fought by marching and protesting, others by using their legal knowledge to change things from the inside. In 1971, she co-founded the Women's Rights Project of the American Civil Liberties Union, more commonly known as the ACLU. Ruth started to take on sexual discrimination cases and knew that they would be part of a bigger picture. She had been a victim of sexual discrimination herself years ago when she graduated law school, and it was still happening over a decade later.
1: Ruth made her way back to Columbia Law School in 1972, becoming the first tenured female law professor in the school's 114-year history. She did all of this while serving as the ACLU's general counsel. This is where she got her first brush with the Supreme Court.
0: So the case was Frontero versus Richardson. Sharon Frontero, a lieutenant for the U.S. Air Force, was looking to obtain a dependence allowance for her husband. Federal law provided that provided the wives of members of the military automatically became dependents. So husbands of female members of the military, however, were not accepted as dependents. Frontero's request for dependent status for her husband was turned down.
1: Frontero's lawyer, Joe Levin, teamed up with Ginsburg and the ACLU's Women's Rights Project to take the matter to the highest court in the country. It was the first time Ruth argued in front of the Supreme Court, and it turned out to be a pretty prominent case in the fight for gender equality. Ginsburg argued that military benefits could not be distributed differently based on gender.
0: Ginsburg and Frontero won the landmark case in 1973. So there were a couple of goals for this case. So one was to obtain justice and money for Frontera, which was done, um, to explain and prove gender discrimination and how it hurts women. Women are being treated as second class citizens because of their sex, and we shouldn't be standing for that. Ruth also wanted the Supreme Court to recognize gender as a protected class under the Equal Protection Clause. Mm-hmm. Only the first two things happen. Um, the case was won and the court was moved by the argument, but not moved enough to change any laws. Not yet anyway. Well, like, I think this is a
1: really great case to to sort of start the ball rolling with this. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it could be read as discrimination against the husband. hmm. So, like, a man is being penalized for the discrimination against a woman. So, like, I don't know, maybe the court will listen to this. Mm-hmm. I, but, of course, they might flip that around and be like, oh, well, what kind of man are you that you need? You know, yeah. there's that. So, mm-hmm. I don't know.
0: So, Ruth was playing the long game. She was focusing on cases that were clear examples of gender bias. What's a good way to show a group of men that something is wrong? Show it happening to someone who looks like them. Show that discrimination hurts men too. Mm -hmm. Enter Stephen Weisenfeld. Stephen's wife died during childbirth, leaving him as the sole caretaker. His wife, Paula, was a teacher and up until the time of her death was paying social security contributions. They're coming out of her paycheck, coming out of her salary, like normal, like you do. Mm -hmm. When she died, Stephen applied for those social security benefits for himself and his son. And he was told that his son could receive them, but he could not. Now, the Social Security Act provides benefits
1: based on the earnings of a deceased husband and father that are available to both children and the widow. The benefits for a deceased wife and mother, however, are only available to the children, or they were at this point. Yeah. Stephen sued, and the case made its way to the Supreme Court in Weinberger v. Weisenfeld. Ginsburg argued that the Social Security Act unfairly discriminated on the basis of sex. The court voted in her favor 8-0. Now, why not 9 Well, Justice William O. Douglas did not participate in either the discussion or the decision of this case. This was likely due to illness as
0: he resigned from the court later the same year because of his failing health. Ruth followed this case up with Edward versus Healy in 1975. Ginsburg was challenging a Louisiana state law that allowed women to opt out of jury services. So part of me wants to be like, Ruthie, please sit down. We do not want to go to jury duty. Leave us alone. We don't want to be there, but we need to be there. A jury is supposed to be made up of your peers. And if you only have dudes to judge a case, like that wouldn't really be fair. Like how many women do you think have been found guilty because some dude just like couldn't relate or let their biases do the thinking? I mean, so many,
1: so many, but I will, I will throw out there. I do like jury duty. I really do. I, I, and to be fair, like I, the thing, the, the times I've had jury duty, um, like I had, federal grand jury duty. Mm-hmm. You would the fun one. It was like I went once a week for three months or something. And so it didn't fully interfere with like a job, right? Okay. Whereas like one that you go five days a week might really throw off your your work schedule Yeah, and so
0: that was for me, like I only had jury duty once. I, I've been looking forward to having it and then I had it and it was like right when courts opened back up after COVID and we had to like wear a mask the whole time. And the lawyers we had were just weird. It was a medical case. And I was glad that I was on that jury because like, This hospital, I won't say the name of the hospital, but they were trying to spend a lot of money to make this, like, man look bad when they could have just given him that money. And I was like, oh, I'm so glad I'm here because, like, you're not going to railroad him. Like, you're going to give him his money. But the case lasted so long, and then they ended up settling out, and it had been, like, four weeks. That's frustrating. Yeah, it was very frustrating. You didn't even get to vote. (laughs) No. It was super frustrating, and it was, I don't know, I think it was a lot of the the, the, the lawyers we had were really about wasting everyone's time. Like come mm-hmm. in for two hours. Okay. Now here's a lunch break. Okay. You're going to sit while we like figure out our paperwork. Okay. Now come back in. Okay. Now you can leave. And it was just like, well, this is annoying because it's really hot. It was a summer and it'd been like just back and forth for like four weeks and like never really a full day or like a day that was like much longer. Like we're going to keep you to seven. And it's like, ah, oh, could you like not? But yeah, it was it was it was I'm glad that I was there for the case, but the whole thing was handled so jankily that I was just like, I you guys need to get it together. Like, this is the court of law. Like, why is yeah. it so? The,
1: I had one case where they ended up settling it like that, but it only lasted a day before the lawyer was like, um, judge, I would like you to make a decision instead of making like forcing these jurors to vote on something like this, because it's so it was uh. It was a mess too, though. But yeah, I think I was an alternate on that jury, but you had to like be there even if you were an alternate.
0: Yeah. Back to Ginsburg. She had spent a really long time creating this like legal space. And like, it wasn't easy. Every time she went before the all-male Supreme Court, they belittled her. They questioned the masculinity of the men that she was representing. They just didn't understand why people weren't happy in their gender roles.
1: Uh, (laughs) Like I roll giant sigh. Yes. During her time at the ACLU, Ginsburg took part in about 34 Supreme Court cases. She won five out of the six cases that she argued before the court. She's made a name for herself and she shined a light on the
0: injustices that gender bias caused. So it was someone took notice, and that was President Jimmy Carter. Ginsburg was nominated by President Jimmy Carter on April 14th, 1980 to sit on the U.S. Court of Appeals. In this role, she would hear appeals from federal court cases around the United States. In 1993, a spot became
1: vacant in the Supreme Court. In the documentary RBG, they focus on her husband, Marty. He was her biggest fan and would let everyone know it. He's labeled as a huge reason why she was nominated to the Supreme Court. And even in her book, she says like it weren't if it wasn't for him.
0: Mm. Ruth is a very quiet and humble woman. She knew that she was qualified, but she wasn't about to run around telling people that. But Marty would. And he did. He was well connected and would talk up his wife and her skills to the right people. He got the buzz going, but Ruth's record and mine did the rest of the work. In the documentary,
1: we hear from former President Bill Clinton. He states, it was her interview that did it. We arranged for her to come to the White House. I wanted to see how her mind worked. So I engaged her in this conversation and all of a sudden, I wasn't the president interviewing her for the Supreme Court anymore. We were two people having an honest discussion about what's the best way in the moment and for the future to make law. He would go on to say that he knew she had the job within 15 minutes of meeting her.
0: During her confirmation hearing, Ginsburg spoke about women's rights and her work against gender bias. She affirmed that her, she affirmed her belief in the constitutional right to privacy and a woman's right to abortion. In August 1993, she was voted in by a vote of 96 to 3. I mean... Just that number blew
1: my mind. Like, can mm-hmm. you imagine that happening today? Yeah. Everything is so politicized. Like the votes are almost split down the middle. Like, mm-hmm. just take Ketanji Brown Jackson, for example, right? The The newest Supreme Court justice. Mm-hmm. Super qualified. Probably one of the most qualified judges in a long time. And the vote to appoint her was 53
0: to 47. Yeah, like that's kind of insane.
1: 96 to three because they were actually voting on her qualifications to like
0: be a judge mm-hmm. not on politics the guy he was like running the 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 hearings yeah Warren hatch like says that he like does not agree with her like on a number of points but like he respects like her like hard work and like her history to be there so like I think back then it was like, hey, you could get a 96 to three vote because it was like, I don't have further implications. Like, I don't like what you're saying about this, but like, you're still good at your job. So I guess come do it. Yeah. There's not a lot of, well, if I vote for this person, this other person like won't vote for me. Like, I feel like a lot of politics now is like trading votes and, you know, Mm -hmm paying out favors and it might have been a little bit different back then where you could get a vote like this because that is you're right that's huge 96 to 3 is huge yeah especially
1: when you i mean and that's honestly that's the way it should be if someone is qualified for the job it should be mm-hmm. so strongly in favor of that person mm-hmm. and now we're talking about someone else who's extremely qualified and getting basically a 50 50
0: vote i mean yeah. like just making it yeah yeah like just making it to me. And then I guess like those numbers, if you're someone who's going to look for like, you know, a reason to dislike someone, you're going to be like, oh, those numbers are really low. Like she like barely made it in there, but Jackson Brown, but like it's the people who were voting that have the problem really, not her because she was overqualified for the whole position. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Speaking of people who were overqualified with their passion, Ginsburg. Ginsburg's on the court now. So she brings her passion for gender equality to the court with her. One of the first cases was United States versus Virginia. This case was concerning the Virginia Military Institute and its long tradition as Virginia's only exclusively male public undergraduate higher learning institution. So the United States brought a lawsuit against Virginia and VMI, alleging that the school's male-only admissions policy was unconstitutional as it violated the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. While speaking, while speaking of the case, Ginsburg said, Virginia serves the state's sons. It makes no provisions whatsoever for her daughters. That is not equal protection. And writing- I feel like she, like, snapped. <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
1: if she didn't, she should have. Yeah. The writing for the majority opinion, Justice Ginsburg used the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to force the institution to admit 30 women in the fall of 1997. So some of the lessons learned here. Women can do anything men can. Mm -hmm. Public education is for everyone. Virginia's public schools are financed through a combination of state, local, and federal funds. You can't take women's tax money and then deny them entry. The case showed the others on the Supreme Court and throughout America that RBG was a woman of her words and principles. She said she would focus
0: on gender issues, and she did. So over the years, as the landscape of the Supreme Court changed, with the addition of more conservative judges, Booth became less of the majority. So when there was a case that she disagreed with, she would just release a dissent. Mm -hmm. I'm not a legal scientist, so I had to Google it. Like, what is a dissent? According to an article written by Drudy Bagat for the Boston Public Library, a dissent is when the Supreme Court decides on a case. when When they issue a majority opinion, the majority opinion explains why the majority of the justices decided the case the way that they did.
1: However, in many rulings, not all the justices agree that the decision was correct. In this case, one or more justices will file a dissent that comes along with the majority opinion. In the dissent, the justices who disagree with the ruling explain why they disagree. And a beautiful example of this is Justice Sotomayor's dissent issued after the Dobbs v. Jackson case that led to the overturning of Roe v. Wade. So uh, we can link that in the notes. Mm
0: -hmm. Both opinions and dissents become part of case law and precedent. What this means is that in future cases at any level, lawyers can use the decisions and the reasonings behind the case to help their own cases. While majority opinions have a greater role in this because majority of justices agreed on it, dissents can also be used in future cases. For a time, Ginsburg became well-known for writing some very powerful dissents.
1: One of the most powerful of these being the dissent in the Ledbetter versus Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company case in 2007. Now, we mentioned this case briefly in episode 15 on Women's History Month, so you can go back to hear a little bit more there. Ginsburg wrote the dissent in the 5-4 case, which denied Lily Ledbetter the right to sue her employer for gender-based pay discrimination because of the length of time that had passed since the violation.
0: So to be super clear, the Supreme Court said, yeah, they discriminated against you by paying you 40% less than the men that you work with, but you took too long to bring up your case, so we, like, really can't help you. Bye. (sighs) Eye roll. groan, Yeah. RBG wrote,
1: our precedent suggests, and lower courts have overwhelmingly held, that the unlawful practice is the current payment of salaries infected by gender-based or race-based discrimination, a practice that occurs whenever a paycheck delivers less to a woman than to a similarly situated man. She then urged Congress to fix what she called, quote, the Supreme Court's mistake.
0: So, like, about Louie, could you imagine, like... First off, like you find out you're making less, but you're making 40% less, which is like a huge number less to make. The person who issued the check, do you think they were just like (laughs) every time they wrote it? Like, or were they just like, nah, she's fine. She doesn't need grocery money or whatever. Like, that's just such a big difference in pay to be okay with doing that to someone for so many years. Like, how do you, how do you like sleep at night? How do you like go, how do you look this woman in the face every time? Just being like, yeah, you make way less. Yeah, I I don't know. It's it's infuriating, though. Yeah. So it took two whole years. So on January 29th, 2009, President Barack Obama signed into law the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. The act requires employers to redouble their efforts to ensure that their pay practices are non-discriminatory and to make sure that they keep records to prove it. The
1: case of Shelby County versus Holder, 2013, is probably Ginsburg's most famous dissent because she used this to partially criticize Chief Justice John Roberts as he struck down a key section of the Voting Rights Act, basically freeing mostly Southern states from having to clear voting changes with the federal government.
0: In Ginsburg's dissent, she said throwing out preclearance when it has worked and is continuing to work to stop discriminatory challenges is like throwing out your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. I love that. It's so true, though. So I knew about RBG because of history, but this was like the first time I had heard from her directly. I feel like younger people like me were just starting to get more involved in politics and law, and like she became kind of an icon.
1: Yeah, this is when she was given the nickname, the Notorious RBG. Obviously, I feel like I don't need to say it, but I will just in case, a play on the Notorious B.I.G. But we'll get into that a bit more in just a moment.
0: So with everything that we've discussed about Ruth, all the historical things that she's done, all the changes she's implemented up to this point, none of it really mattered until Tumblr. I mean, just kidding. But her life did hit like a whole new level of fame when someone created a Tumblr for her. So I don't really know what Tumblr is. So like, Rebecca, can you explain what it is?
1: I mean, I'm not very good at Tumblr. I have one that I used for a little while and then I just kind of stopped um, but it's basically like a blogging and social network website, kind of combined, a two in one. It lets people post like songs and videos and gifts and, and other content to like a short form blog. But you can then like follow all the blogs in one space, or you can decide to make your blog private if you want. Like there's so it's, it's kind of like a combo blog social media thing. So, like, a super high-tech live journal. Yeah, or, like, um, a less janky MySpace.
0: (laughs) Listen, MySpace was, like, perfect for the time. There were no ads, no influencers. Just, like, you put your song up. You write on people's wall. You pick your top eight. (laughs) Your top eight. The good old days. (laughs) The good old days. So... Anyway, right, so the person who started that Tumblr was Shauna Kishnick. She started the Tumblr page after her friend posted on Facebook, Wow, Justice Ginsburg sure can write, hashtag notoriousRBG. Shauna took this and started a page filled with pictures and quotes from RBG. I mean, not to
1: so is the co creator of a poster that depicts Ruth with a hand drawn crown and the phrase, Can't spell truth without Ruth. So, sums up the phenomena that the internet plus RBG caused. She states young people are really craving different kinds of icons. Realizing that somebody like RBG has been doing their job for decades and being forceful and speaking truth to power kind of blows my mind. We were also hungry to hear from Ruth Bader Ginsburg.
0: I kind of think, and I know we're not talking about him, but I always have him in the forefront of my brain because I love him. I think that's how like Bernie Sanders kind of became an icon too. Like he's been doing his job for years and been like affecting change. Mm -hmm. So I definitely think that, yeah, she's right. Like there was just a point where all of us were like, things need to change and we need someone to do it. Who can do it? Oh, you who've been doing this forever and you know what this is all about. Please teach us your ways. Yeah. Yeah. So like for the modern audience, like her dissents, Ginsburg's dissents were like clapbacks and the Internet loves a good clapback. So social media made a meme after meme and they were positive and they got people talking about legal issues. In an article titled More Than a Meme published by Bowdoin magazine, the other co-creator of the Can't Spell Truth Without Ruth poster spoke about the magic behind it all. Frank Chi says,
1: And Justice Ginsburg embraced it. If she hadn't, Notorious RBG would have been something that was cool on the internet for a few months. That's what I think is amazing. She had such a long, celebrated career, and she finally got to be the presence she was obviously comfortable being, and the internet allowed that to happen.
0: RBG loved it. She signed books. She signed mugs with her face on it. She even gave friends and family shirts that said notorious RBG. This reach to a younger audience happened after her husband, Marty, passed away. And he had been her biggest supporter. I can't help but to think that he would have loved this. And maybe because she was so used to getting his support and admiration that the same from strangers didn't seem so strange. Maybe, Yeah. The world was embracing her. Kate McKinnon's playing her on Saturday Night Live. All eyes and ears are on Ruth. She spoke her mind and she got in a bit of hot water for it. In July of 2016, Ruth was asked about Donald Trump's bid for presidency. In an interview with the New York Times, Ginsburg didn't
1: hide her contempt for Trump, saying, I can't imagine what the country would be with Donald Trump as our president. And that her late husband would have said that it was time for us to move to New Zealand. And she goes on to say, at first, I thought it was funny, uh, you know, of Trump's early candidacy. Didn't we all? To think that there's a possibility that he could be president. Her voice trailed off gloomily. I think he has gotten so much free publicity, she added, drawing a contrast between what she believed was tougher media treatment of Democratic candidate Hillary Clinton and returning to an overriding complaint. Every other presidential candidate has turned over tax returns. She ended out the interview by calling him a faker.
0: So let's like not to get like geopolitical, political, but I don't think Ruth was wrong and I don't think she told any lies, but this wasn't okay. It was highly unusual for a justice to make such politically charged statements. And some critics say that she crossed the line as she's supposed to remain neutral in these situations.
1: She later apologized for what she called ill-advised comments. She said, On reflection, my recent remarks in response to press inquiries were ill-advised and I regret making them. Judges should avoid commenting on a candidate for public office. In the future, I will be more circumspect.
0: I feel like Trump gets like everyone on edge. Even his fans are like very passionate. So I get why she said what she said. However, people use her comments to question her mental fitness and if she should even be on the bench any longer. But, you know, meanwhile, like,
1: can we question the mental fitness of the man that she was criticizing? I mean,
0: that's a whole other thing. We don't question men, Rebecca. Oh, right. I'm sorry. I forgot. (laughs) (laughs) So at this point, RBG was 83 years old and had worked most of her life in public service. People expected and some even begged her to retire while Obama was still in office so that he could be the one to pick her replacement.
1: When she was asked about this in an interview in 2017, she replied with, I've said many times that I'll do this job as long as I can do it full steam. And when I can't, that will be the time I step down.
0: To her credit, she was 83 years old, working 10 hour days. She had cancer four times and only missed three days of work in her 25 year career on the court. She had no expectations of slowing down. At an event for the
1: Library of Congress in August 2019, Ruth revealed that during her bouts with cancer, she had often turned to work to distract her from her health. I get that. Yeah, you do. I love my job. It has kept me going through four cancer bouts. Instead of concentrating on my aches and pains, I just know that I have to read a set of briefs and go over a draft opinion. Somehow, I have to surmount whatever is going on in my body and concentrate on the court's work.
0: She was being asked to retire when she was on top. The notorious RBG image was everywhere. She was influencing change and becoming the reason why many women were going into law. She was writing really powerful and really important dissents. Stepping away now would be like giving up her voice. Also, she didn't really get where she was by letting people tell her what to do. Retiring would be a big life change and a very deep and personal decision. Ruth was still sharp. Why would she not continue?
1: Yeah, it wasn't until 2020 that her health really started to become an issue. But a slowdown wasn't noticed, as in her last days, Ginsburg handled cases concerning voting rights, COVID-19, and contraceptive mandates. She was hospitalized for a gallbladder issue, but participated in oral arguments from her hospital bed. In May 2020, the court was hearing one of the most important cases of the term as Trump's administration was attempting to extend exemptions to Obamacare's contraceptive mandate. Basically, under Obamacare, or the Affordable Care Act, as is officially known, employers were required to provide health insurance plans that covered birth control.
0: So Trump was attempting, was basically attempting to get rid of this mandate by offering exemptions to companies based on religious and moral objections. I roll. Just let people have birth control. And you know what would make this a lot easier? Universal health care. Oh my God. Speaking of Bernie fucking Sanders... Can't. Anyway, Ginsburg wasn't having it, and she flopped back, saying, This leaves the women out to hunt for other government programs that might cover them. She told Solicitor General Noel Francisco. He's a member of Trump's administration. You have just tossed entirely to the wind what Congress thought was essential. That is, that women be provided these services with no hassles, no cost to them. The 2019 2020 term was wrapping up for the Supreme Court,
1: and Ginsburg was having more health troubles and was in and out of the hospital. On September 18th, 2020, at the age of 87, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died from complications of
0: metastatic pancreatic cancer at her home
1: in Washington, D.C.
0: Justice Ginsburg was surrounded by her family, which included her two children, Jane, who is a professor at Columbia Law School, and her son, James, who who is in the music industry. Ginsburg also had four grandchildren, one of them, Clara Sparrow, who followed in her grandmother's footsteps by working for the ACLU's Reproductive Freedom Project. Spera spent a lot of
1: time with her grandmother, who she affectionately called Bubby. Ginsburg's final statement was dictated to Clara from her deathbed. It was simply, my most fervent wish is that I will not be replaced until a new president is installed. Well, that wish wasn't respected, but that is a topic for another episode. A rage topic. A rage topic. I will rage.
0: They were in, like, early voting had started, so they're... Should not have been a reason why Trump got to select that at all. I mean, especially after what they did with Obama. But you said, as
1: you said, this is another discussion for another time. We should on
0: it. (laughs) Yes. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg broke one more record after death, becoming the first woman to lie in state in the United States Capitol. This was a super rare distinction, but like, what does it mean? By strict definition, lying in state is reserved for those who have served in the government, and it applies only to the time their coffins are displayed in the Capitol or government building, either in Washington or at a state level. The ceremony is accompanied by a military guard. This was America showing Ginsburg a final great honor.
1: Ginsburg has such a long and impactful legacy, she's dedicated her life to the law and is a fantastic role model. I mean, let's just look at her marriage. It seemed like from a very early age, Ruth was aware of what kind of impact she wanted to have and what moves to take to get there. When she was in college, women weren't really taken seriously. She found a husband who loved her mind and wanted her to be successful, and this was pretty rare in the 50s, but her relationship with Marty, I mean, couples' goals. They supported each other, and when the other was going through changes in their career or health issues, the other one stepped up. Their marriage enabled them both to be successful without one of them feeling shorted or resentful.
0: Ruth was all about gender equality, and for her, it started at home. Ruth is also a pioneer. She was the first woman to be on both the Harvard and Columbia Law Reviews. As we said earlier, you need to be at the top of your class to be part of these groups. Ruth was really smart. She also co-founded the first law journal on women's rights at Rutgers University. She became the second female law professor at Rutgers and fought for equal pay. When Ruth found out that her male counterpart was being paid more than her and her other female employees, they filed an Equal Pay Act complaint and they won. She became the first tenured female professor at Columbia Law School. While she was the second woman to be placed on the Supreme Court, she was the first Jewish justice, which, like, doesn't that sound like a fun superhero? Jewish justice. Yes. And she was also the first justice to officiate a same-sex marriage.
1: Not only did she use her skills to open doors for herself, she made sure she kept that door open for other women. In the 1996 United States v. Virginia case, Ginsburg wrote the majority opinion that it is unconstitutional for schools funded by taxpayer dollars to bar women. While some people shrugged it off as being unfair, Ruth demanded that it was straight up illegal to treat women this way. Since the Supreme Court ruling, 602 women have graduated from VMI.
0: Ginsburg paved the way for the Equality Credit Opportunity Act in 1974, this basically allows women to apply for credit cards or mortgages without a male cosigner before you had to have a man in your life. And if you didn't, you just had to what, like work really hard and like whatever money you had in your pocket was what covered things. I Basically, I mean, right? like, and I, even then it was probably
1: not super easy to get that job. And, you know, you, you could have an account, but only if, his
0: name was on it. Right. Yeah. There's a very funny joke that I I say all the time. It's from 30 Rock. One of this woman asked Tina Fey's character, she's married and she says no. And she's like, how do you get credit at the mattress store? So like, I would always make that joke whenever like I had to pay for (laughs) something. What? You're not married. How do you get credit at the mattress store? Because like you wouldn't be able to get credit at the mattress store back then if you didn't have like a man to sign, you know, (laughs) your account. So like. No mattresses for you.
1: No mattresses for you. Sleep on the floor.
0: Yeah. So like no mattresses, no house, no car loans, or like no sense of independence. Right. Ginsburg fought for a woman's right to choose, be it an abortion or birth control or working while pregnant. Ruth fought for women to make that choice themselves.
1: Ginsburg was also a role model. When Erin Carmen, the co-creator of the Notorious RBG Tumblr, was asked, why are young women so inspired by RBG? She stated, To us, it's such an obvious question that it's hard to answer. We live in a society that most of the time really stigmatizes ideals of gender equality and feminism, and there's this woman who has for decades been using her power in the highest court of the land for good. It's a really
0: big deal. RBG's lived experiences pushed her, not just to make things better for herself, but to advance civil and human rights for all. She might not have been in the same shoes as those cases that she heard, but her life as a woman allowed her to understand being considered a second-class citizen. Uh, I I want to
1: bring up one thing in terms of impact. It's a lighter note. Did you know that there was an opera inspired by the opinions of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Antonin Scalia? No. Yep. Yep. It's called Scalia slash Ginsburg. And it's by uh, a guy named Derek Wang. Uh, He refers to it as a gentle parody of operatic proportions.
0: (laughs) I love that.
1: And when the the libretto for the opera was printed in the Columbia Journal of Law and Arts, both Ginsburg and Scalia wrote prefaces to it. Um, it's in her book, My Own Words. Mm-hmm. If, if anyone wants to check it out, I just read the preface to it. I didn't read the whole operatic libretto, but it's there. <laughs> she was a
0: fan. She she was like she was into this she's opera. opera fan. Yeah, she's a huge opera fan. She's and to have one about herself, like cool. Right? I mean, that must have been, like, the coolest thing for her, right? Like, you go to yeah. these operas all the time, and now it's like, oh, my God, this one's about me. <laughs> <laughs> so there are some people who have a hard time remembering Ruth fondly due to the recent the recent overturning of Roe vs. Wade. I think that this is just another way to pass the blame onto a woman, and especially one who can't defend herself right now. However, there's an article titled Extraordinarily Self-Centered, As Roe reversal looms, RBG admires Wrestle with Her Legacy by Michael Schaefer. The author speaks to people who blame Ruth for the possible fall of weight. This article was written in June of 2022, so just before the fall. Schaefer hears these people out, but then offers this rebuttal. The fact
1: is, people looking to cast blame for the rollback of abortion rights have a pretty long list of culprits before getting to Ginsburg. The justices who may write the decision— the presidents who appointed them, the GOP Senate that blocked Barack Obama's third judicial nomination, the Democrats who didn't pass a national abortion rights bill when they had large majorities, the filibuster, the electoral college, and on and on. You could even say another judicial retirement decision. In 1991, Thurgood Marshall stepped down declaring himself old and falling apart. Marshall wound up living until four days after Bill Clinton's inauguration, meaning that if he had somehow stayed put, Clarence Thomas might never
0: have joined the court to eventually vote down Roe. I would like to see the sliding doors on that if Clarence Thomas just never was on the Supreme Court. Like, I oh, wonder what things would look like.
1: The dream. I just... it it, it
0: Yeah. <laughs> I got nothing. Rage. <laughs> I got nothing but rage and time. That'll be, maybe we can just do like a Patreon episode, which is just us venting about shit. Yeah. Would you guys buy that? Maybe. <laughs> How much would you pay? <laughs> How much would you pay to hear me complain
1: about shit? I mean, it is your, your social media
0: handle. Oh my God, it is. Complaints. <laughs> <I can't think. laughs> underscore NYC or underscore 530, depending on what it's on. <laughs> Come find me and listen to me rant about things. The decision yeah. about Roe Wade should not or could not overshadow all the good that Ginsburg has done. Whether as a lawyer or a judge, Ruth worked so hard to try to end discrimination and make things equal for all. There's no doubt that she left this world a better place than she found it. We are all literally reaping the benefits. <laughs>
1: So final thoughts, takeaways, Ruth Bader Ginsburg.
0: Um, my thought was, do you remember like the day that she died? Because I remember it being crazy town banana pants. Like COVID was everywhere. We didn't have a vaccine. Like I said, early voting had just started for like the Trump Biden election and the whole that whole time was, at least for me, like super stressful. So when I saw the news of her death, it was just like, oh, fuck you, 2020. Like another one, like you got another person. It, there mm-hmm. was just a feeling of doom. And this year was just like trash. And now it took one of our strongest fighters. But I, I don't think that her death should overshadow her life. I think Ruth was so far ahead of the times. Like she was fighting for gender equality back in the 70s and the 80s. And it must've felt like, fighting a brick wall but like didn't care about women but she never gave up and that's super impressive and I'm mm-hmm. I'm just like really glad that she did like she's really an inspiration and like as a fellow introvert it's really nice to see that someone could affect so much change without being the loudest in the room. Ruth was quietly effective and I I think that's really masterful. I like, she's amazing and she was amazing.
1: I absolutely remember the day that she died. Like I don't think I had cried that hard in a long time like probably since trump had been elected like Mm -hmm. i it was scary like at first i cried because she was gone you know like Mm -hmm. general mourning and that sort of thing but then i cried because i just i just knew that he was going to try and get another one in before the election like and and that the senate that we had at that time would support it and vote on it like you said early voted had already begun they wouldn't they wouldn't give Obama justice when it was more than 100 days before the election. And here they were getting another one in when the election was already underway. It was so infuriating. I Like, I've never cried over a celebrity death before. Like, you know, people say like, oh, Robin Williams or Prince or, you know, David Bowie. What? Nothing. But this one, I, I was a mess that day, right? Like, not just for what we'd lost, but for what I figured and was unfortunately right about losing down the line. Yeah. So we've got a a few resources and references to share with you that we use for our research, but also some that will help you get more information uh, to learn even more about this wonderful woman.
0: So one of them is RBG, a 2018 documentary directed by Betsy West and Julie Cohen. That one's on Amazon Prime if you want to check it out there. Ruth Justice Ginsburg, in her own words, that was a 2019 documentary directed by Frida Lee Mock. She also did the 2013 Anna, Anita Hill documentary, Anita Speaking Truth to Power. You should go watch that one, too, if you have not
1: Yeah, I'm assuming, well, I don't know yet, uh, but I, I'm guessing there might be some connection between that documentary and the My Own Words book. That is by Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, with Mary Hartnett and Wendy W. Williams. And we also have How Ruth Bader Ginsburg Became the Notorious RBG by Lauren Kelly for Rolling Stone.
0: There's a website called Oye. It's a free law project from Cornell's Legal Information Institute. So so many court cases are listed there and they explain it in like simpler terms. If you want to like nerd out and learn about like the actual steps behind all the court cases, that's a perfect website.
1: And it's um, O-Y-E-Z.com.
0: Com. Yep. Okay. O-Y-E-Z.com. Got it. Another article is The Class of RBG written by Dahlia Lithwick and Molly Olmsted. In this article, they cover the stories of the nine other women in that Harvard law class we spoke about, the class of 59. It's told by them, their families, and Justice Ginsburg herself. Ruth Bader Ginsburg and dissents.
1: What's a dissent? And heavyweight, how Ruth Bader Ginsburg has moved the Supreme Court by Jeffrey Tubin.
0: So let us know what you thought of this episode. Do you have anything that you want to add to the conversation? Is there anything that we left out? Or do you have any suggestions for them that we should cover in the future?
1: Follow the podcast on Twitter at Big Rep Pod and Instagram and TikTok at Big Reputations Pod. Send us a message or email us at bigreputationspod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you.
0: Subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get podcasts. Share us with your friends, your family, or other notorious folks. Subscribe and leave a five-star review. Check out our Big Reputations merch. The link
1: is in the show notes as well as in our Linktree link found on all of our social media platforms. Thanks again to our wonderful logo designer, Samantha Marmalejo, for putting that together for us. Be sure to take a picture and tag us when you make a purchase.
0: Sugar she her baby out. She did. Aww. And remember, we've got a Patreon now. Patreon.com slash Pod, Or just check out the link in our Linktree. Whether you pledge 2 or $5, you will get a shout out in our episodes. And if you choose the $5 level,
1: you will have exclusive access to our Little Reputations episodes. These are short mini episodes about amazing women throughout history. In our first Little Rep episode, we'll be discussing the legacy of the amazing Nichelle Nichols. So let's wrap up this episode on the amazing Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Kim, what quote do you have for us this week?
0: So mine is from the woman of the hour herself, Justice Ginsburg, a gender line helps to keep women not on a pedestal, but in a cage. And as always, believe women. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Little Reputations. Today's Little Reputation is
1: about Nichelle Nichols, born Grace Dell Nichols. Apparently, her name change was not done for Hollywood. It was something she repeatedly asked her parents about at a young age. They offered Nichelle, meaning Victorious Maiden, as an alternative.
0: That's kind of